0: Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and it's freezing balls cold outside, boys and girls, so let that be a warning to you. At some point during this episode, it's virtually guaranteed that you're going to hear some kind of noise in the background, and you need to know that is my heater. I need a heater here in my little home office, the, I don't know, Magnificent Magnus Cave, the Secret Sanctum. I haven't really come up with a, a really good nerdy name for my little cave here, so I, I don't know. I'll figure out something. But anyway, point is, it gets really fucking cold, and in fact, you know what, honestly, this home office in some ways actually sort of pisses me off. Because it's cool in the winter, it's warm in the summer. I mean, it's, it's not an office. It's a fucking nightmare sometimes. Well, anyway, whatever. This is turning into a rant already. So, um, sorry about that. Anyway, so, I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about comics. And lately what I've been doing is talking about how these seven men are disrupting the comics industry. Which seven men? Well, I speak of the co-founders of Image Comics, because you see, boys and girls, what I did starting a couple of weeks ago was launch a series, a mega-series, in fact. I launched a series that's all about the initial offerings of Image Comics, and I kind of wanted to focus my attention, not even just on the founders of Image, although certainly that was a priority, but specifically I wanted to focus on their first offerings to the public so yes in a certain I I guess it would be fair to say that you could do a show or perhaps series of shows about team seven but here's the thing team seven is a book that was released by wildstorm wildstorm at least at that time was owned by jim lee But this was not the first offering from Wildstorm. No, no. The first offering of Wildstorm was Wildcats. And so, for that reason, I wanted to talk about Wildcats when I was talking about comics released by Wildstorm. So, anywho, so there you go. That's kind of the thinking behind all of this. Not just Image Comics. Not just Image Comics specifically by the Image co-founders but specifically the first things that, the, that those co-founders offered to the public to say, this is what my company is all about. What are those comics like? And so I got to tell you, when I was reading all these issues in anticipation of all of these episodes, I must tell you that it was... I, I, I remembered enjoying these these comics. I remember having... Honestly, more respect for these comics than I think most people have these days. But even I was kind of surprised by just how much fun I had rereading these comics. And just, I, I, I guess, just enjoying the... Uh, I don't know, the, the action of it all, or the fun of it all, or the edginess of it all, you know? So that's, honestly, considering some of the just fucking retarded bullshit that the comics industry is putting out these days, of all things, it's Image Comics, like those early Image Comics that is giving me, honestly, the breath of fresh air that I just was not expecting. So anyway, uh, but I guess without further ado, I should probably get start getting into today's subject matter, and so today I've... Uh, I wanted to well, fuck it. I'm just going to uh, I'm not going to try to find some kind of artful or witty way of introducing the subject. What I wanted to do for this episode is talk about the Savage Dragon number 1. So, maybe I should tell my origin story with the Savage Dragon in due course. As it is for right now, I'm really not sure if I'm going to continue doing these story synopses going going forward in the future. You know, uh, listing off all the different credits, the story title, the summary of the stories, and so on. I I, I don't really know if I'm going to continue doing that just because I have to think, especially for Image Comics, if you have any kind of familiarity with these comics at all, that's the reason you're listening. If you had no familiarity with these comics whatsoever, I find it hard to believe you would choose to introduce yourself to these comics through my podcast. So, I don't know. Uh, We'll see. But at least for right now. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and do a synopsis. This is Savage Dragon, number one, cover date of June 1993. Cover artists are Eric Larson and Ruben Rude. Writer is Eric Larson. Penciler is Eric Larson. Inker is Eric Larson. This is starting to kind of sound like a little bit of an Eric Larson joint. Colorists are Zan Mix, Steve Oliff, and Ruben Rude. Letterer? that. there's my heater. Letterer is Chris Eliopoulos. Editor is Jenny Wong. Story synopsis for this story, which seems to be titled Savage Dragon, story synopsis for this story is as follows. The dragon confronts a super-powered mass murderer going by the name The Shrew, but he underestimates his opponent, and he man- and he, The Shrew, manages to escape. The dragon returns to the police station where he begins to lose faith in his best friend Frank Darling as he rightfully suspects that he is purposely keeping uh, him meaning the dragon away from the real action. Wow, this is just not a very well-written synopsis, I don't. Well, whatever. Moving right along, the dragon then returns to his depressed state that he's been in since his first girlfriend Debbie Harris was murdered a couple of months uh, a couple of months ago. Uh This is just completely nonsensical. See, guys, this is what happens when you don't double-check your source. Sometimes, if you don't rewrite some of this summary yourself, you end up in goofy situations where you have to make excuses to your listeners about why things sound so goofy. But I offer no apologies, because it's not like you're paying anything for this. Anyway, he, meaning the dragon, he visits a superhuman bar where he defeats a few members of the Vicious circle before listening to the news. Reports come in that 18 months after his much publicized death, Mighty Man has been sighted over the city. Singer slash actor Peter Clapton then gets a mention for losing his trademarked long hair to a fire of unknown circumstances. Elsewhere in DeKalb, Illinois, a married couple lie dead after committing double suicide while a mysterious voice from the basement calls out. For their parents. Elsewhere, Alex Wilde convinces her superpowered colleague to visit his lost love's gravesite. And by the way, the retarded way that this thing is is phrased, it's referring to the dragon. So actually, I'm just going to reread this. Alex Wilde convinces the dragon to visit his lost love's gravesite, meaning his dead girlfriend's gravesite, where he's verbally assaulted by uh, the dead girlfriend's mother who is named Bonnie Harris. He then hears about an elderly woman who keeps calling the the station, claiming that he, meaning the dragon, is her long-missing son, Rodney. Feeling even more depressed, the dragon welcomes the news of the reappearance of the homicidal maniac, the Shrew. The dragon tears into his foe using a pair of chainsaws for extra protection and is soon lost to his recent anguish and stops himself from, from killing his target standing over his motion, his motionless and bloody body. He pulls himself together and returns to headquarters where he's sent to investigate a superpowered couple living under the city in the abandoned buildings that were built over years and years ago. He gets attacked by the super strong barbaric who had seen the policeman's gun and subsequently panicked. A battle breaks out between the two powerhouses which causes a number of buildings to collapse before the huge red uh, red man's young partner, who is named Ricochet, breaks up the fight, earning an apology from the dragon in the process. The dragon's two new allies declare that they'd be interested in any kind of work that they can get because they're finding it pretty hard to make ends meet. The dragon says that he is seriously gonna consider their offer. And honestly, that's just kind of the I mean, this story doesn't really have a conclusion. It's like the issue just kind of ends. It's almost like you're not getting the actual last page of this story. Like there should be something that comes next, but fucking there's not. So anyway, so that's it. The 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 issue just sort of peters out after that. So anyway, so what did I think? Well Guys, this is not an exaggeration whenever I say that I was captivated by this cover from the time I first saw it, and that captivation it continues, really, to this very day. It's basically the dragon, and he's holding a a giant gun of some kind, but you can't really see very much of it, but you see enough to see that he is holding a gun. He's standing against a black backdrop. Uh, and this is, ba- by the way, this is definitely battle-damaged dragon that we're looking at here, because it looks like uh, his uh, police officer shirt is just gotten ripped to shit, and he's got two nasty-looking cuts above his left eye. He's looking over his left shoulder and it's just sort of glaring at, at the reader. And honestly, one of the disappointments that I had about this issue the first time that I read it is that the interior art doesn't quite live up to this, at least in my opinion. The interior art, I think, is a little bit more substandard quality compared to the cover. The cover is just fucking amazing. I think this is a great cover, and I think it also does a pretty good job of explaining... It's a pretty, it's a pretty good mission statement. Maybe that's the best way to put it. It's a pretty good mission statement that tells you what The Savage Dragon as a comic book is all about and specifically uh it's going to be about this guy he's kind of a dragon looking dude got the fucking giant fin on his head he gets the shit beaten out of him a lot he carries big nasty looking evil looking guns around with him and basically that this is going to be a lot of fun and like i say, i mean honestly sometimes you can't you can't really qu- quantify the emotional reaction that you have to art in fact i would even go so far as most of the time you can't you know it's like if it's done really well or for that I, i guess for that matter if it's done really shitty but if it's done really well there's it has some kind of transcendent quality that Honestly, it kind of defies words. It sort of is immune to rational analysis. This is a fucking amazing cover. And if you can't recognize that, there's nothing I can say to change your mind. So, now, the reason I'm talking so much about the cover is because, as I've gone to pains at times to say during the unfolding of this mega-series that I'm working through, guys... I was not able to follow Image Comics quite to the extent that I wanted to when Image Comics first launched. And the reason for that is actually pretty simple. I was like, I don't even know, like nine or ten or how fucking however old I was when Image Comics launched. And guys, it is not easy. okay, not easy to put together a comic book collection when you've got basically a $5 per week budget with which to work, right? And maybe you can kind of beef that up a little bit by throwing in your lunch money with it, and then you just skip lunch whenever you're at school or something like that. I mean, I don't know. But in the main, you're you're basically starting off behind the eight ball when... That's the only budget that you have to work with, right? I can only imagine what kids today must go. Through. I mean, I don't know what to t- uh, torrents. I guess I mean I, I don't know. I don't know what kids today are, are, are even doing. Well, torrents though, that's kind of passe. I don't know. I don't know what what kids today are, are doing. You know, the uh, comic book collectors, because uh, there've got to be at least a few, at least a few kids out there have got to collect comics, right? And it, I've always been a little bit curious, you know, in this this time in which we live with sky high cover prices and not to comment on the quality of the comics, like what it is that you're buying just the cover price alone. Like, what do you do with that? You know? So anyway, um, but my point is to say, and I'm taking fucking really long time to get there, but my point is to say, I didn't really have a chance to read any Savage Dragon comics Geez, probably till I was almost twenty or something like that. I, these, it's, it, I mean, first off, this has that that gigantic I logo on the front of it, so instantly it's got a sky high aftermarket value. So you can kind of figure if you're not friends with somebody, and I'm talking about back in the old days, right? <gasps> back in the old days, if you're not friends with somebody who owns a copy of savage dragon number one your odds of ever reading it without paying an exorbitant fucking price for it not so good not so good so anyway point is took me a really long time to finally get around to to reading any savage dragon comics and just somewhere along the way i kind of glommed onto to the fact that what eric larson wanted this series to be was not i don't want to say gratuitous but he wanted the comic to be uh maybe a little bit subversive you know he wanted the content to be just a little bit transgressive so uh, maybe a better way to put it is uh slightly immature because one of this characters uh one of the characters names in this issue this is not an exaggeration. One of the characters' names in this issue is Mike, spacebar, Roch. Mike Roch. Mike Roch. And the first time I read this issue, I, I remember thinking to myself, oh, so this is that kind of comic. Okay, now I am on board with this. And so, like I say, I mean, I knew that Eric Larson, he he... I, 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 it's kind of hard to put it into words like almost like 70s grindhouse type of thing. I mean, I don't know what, it's hard to put it into words exactly like the style that he was aiming for. But what I eventually just sort of reasoned for myself is that the dragon is, in his heart of hearts, we're talking about somebody who wants to be pure, who wants to be incorruptible. But he's got superpowers. He lives in a city that's filled to overflowing with people who have superpowers. And he finds himself in all of these situations where he's going up against some very fucking dangerous people, right? And it's sort of like Dirty Harry with with superpowers, I guess. Uh, and I, it's... I guess whenever you can unlock something in that way, that sometimes that 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 can be what what makes the difference. So, I again, I I think maybe the best way to put this is I don't know, kind of nineteen uh, seventy style sort of grindhouse movies. This protagonist who's becoming more and more like Dirty Harry all the time not least because every dirty job that comes along he's the guy that gets saddled with it and there are moments that in this issue where the dragon really does go a little bit too far now not he doesn't he he doesn't kill the shrew but he there is an argument considering the fact that we're talking about characters that have superpowers here there is an argument that he did use some excessive force and so all in all, I just thought that... And by the way, if you were wondering what the uh, opening music was all about and then the outro music is all about, well, that that influence is, is where those musical choices are coming from. Kind of 70s riffic cop protagonists that sometimes go maybe a little bit too far. So... I thought this there were enough similarities with Dirty Harry with Robocop etc it seemed like a pretty good match at least to me so anyway so <clears throat> to finally get into the story it's no it is no exaggeration to say that Larson hits the ground running with with literally on page 1 uh cuz it basically picks up in the middle of the dragon's first battle with the shrew and here again, this is one of those times when you just you can't really comment like intelligently about a battle scene. I mean, a battle scene in a comic book, either that works for you or it doesn't. So the first three pages are basically uh, a, a battle scene, but really, page one. I'm I've always been inclined to the belief that page uh, page one of your first issue. In its own kind of way, it's almost like this is a second cover for the book. You can now say something about the tone and the style of your book or the type of, uh, I don't know, like the type of story that this is going to be, whether it be action or drama, Western, romance, or nonfiction, just fucking whatever it is. You need, your cover is basically meant to grab attention. Your page one is meant to... Shock, awe, and inform. So, shock, we've definitely got. this. There's a lot of blood on page one. Awe, all of these people are dead and now our presumable protagonist, he's facing what appears to be a very dangerous enemy all by himself, <clears throat> and inform. Well, the the dialogue pretty much says it all right there the dragon says end of the line creep you're under arrest so instantly that tells us this guy's a cop shock awe and form and then from there it we're off to the races guys it's uh, uh the dragon he's beating the shit out of the shrew and then the shrew he's beating the shit out of the dragon and the dragon's taking like like some real damage here guys. And this is a guy who cut him. Does he not bleed? I mean, this guy is not invincible by any stretch of the imagination. He's got vulnerabilities just like the rest of us. And so for him to go toe-to-toe with a dangerous customer like the Shrew should tell you something about the dragon's character. And we're going to be getting more into the dragon's character in just a little while because I've got a little... Something, something I want to say there. Now, excuse me while I get a sip off of my Coke because I've been talking virtually nonstop now and it's been over 20 minutes and I'm getting a little thirsty. One minute. Yes, yes, yes. Orange vanilla Coke. You all saw that coming. And speaking of stuff that you saw coming... Vapor, my friends. Such good stuff. All right. So, like I say, first three pages, this is a huge battle. And like I say, like, pretty much right from the jump we're we're getting a a a pretty good idea of what this comic book is all about wildcats as i talked about last week uh wildcats is this is sort of i think the comparison i made at one point was transformers and uh in capes or something like that or transformers and tights or, or or whatever it was it was something like that and that I think is a pretty apt description of what Wildcats as a comic book was all about. Here we're getting something different. This is, like I say, I mean, there's the 70s grindhouse angle, the 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 cop action movie angle, you know, all that stuff. But the other angle is this is this is meant to be a comic book that kids who bought it in 1992 wait is that is that when this thing came out wait no cover date june 1993 okay my apologies so kids who bought this comic back in 1993 they they could buy this and feel just a little bit naughty you know they could they could buy this comic book knowing that this this is the edgy image comic you know this is the one that shows a lot more violence, and a lot more blood, and a lot more uh, fights, and and all that stuff. You know, guns and everything. And that's not to say that that, that... that is not to say that Wildcats didn't have a lot of guns, or the comic book that I'm going to be talking about after I finish up all these Savage Dragon comics, the other image title that I'm going to be talking about, there aren't guns in that, or just whatever... But I think more than any of the rest of the Image co-founders, Eric Larson took a very special pride in having that extra bit of blood, that extra bit of violence, you know? Not so much to glorify in it, so much as just revel in it. You know, these characters are beating the shit out of each other. And I guess what I like about that, quite apart from how cool everything looks, which is an important thing for any comic book, but quite apart from all of that, what I like is, look very often in comics one of the things that one of the criticisms that a lot of people have had about comics and i would say about a lot of media but we're talking about comics here so comics one of the criticisms that people have had about comics for a long time is that you don't necessarily always see the aftermath of violence you know these characters tear each other's heads off and piss down each other's throats well then what and the then what that we get here look uh the number one the the dragon loses this fight by any rational standard loses this fight that's number one and number two he's hurt and it's made clear later on that yeah he has a healing factor and so basically he starts healing the moment he takes damage but there's still, he still needs medical care after this is all finished. He's simply able to absorb punishment that would kill a normal person. So yes, there is, one might say, an, perhaps unnecessary level of violence. And I'm not going to say that, but some people might say an unnecessary level of violence in in this issue. The other way of looking at it, though, is that the violence doesn't come for free. There are consequences to this. And honestly, for a, for a comic book that's meant to be uh, fun and entertaining and kind of edgy, well, that's about as much as you can ask for. So anyway, getting into what uh, comicsology considers to be page five, I guess really this is page four? Yeah, this, I guess, would technically be page four. But whatever, Comixology says it's page five. The dragon is back at the police department. He's he's basically being a bit confrontational with uh Frank Darling. At the same time, he's also being a little bit ev- evasive. And at the bottom of the page, the 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 dragon's internal monologue uh said, among other things, it says, I don't trust Frank anymore. And that's a hell of a thing to say because you get the idea that these guys, like, once upon a time, they used to be pretty tight. So what happened? And you don't have to wait very long for the answer. What happened is we find out on uh, Comixology's page six that basically Darling recruited the dragon to the Chicago police somewhat under false under a false pretext. And, well, hell with it. I'm just going to go ahead and, and read the mo- the uh, internal monologue here. He says, this is Frank Darling's inter- internal monologue. He says, it's hard to believe that it was two years ago that Dragon was found alive in a burning field. He woke as an amnesiac, unable to remember anything about his life, yet he he had, he had full knowledge of everything else, a type of amnesia never heard of. And it goes on to say, basically, that Darling tried to recruit him to the police with no dice. Doesn't work. In desperate, he goes on to say, in desperation, I arranged for freaks to threaten Fred, thinking basically Dragon's boss. I arranged for freaks to threaten Fred, figuring that if Dragon saw the th- their threat firsthand, that he might be swayed to join the force. It didn't work out as I planned. After Dragon had them hauled off to jail, the villains blew up the warehouse, killing Fred. Dragon joined the force, but at a price. Turns out that Skullface from the vicious circle discovered my scheme, and now he's threatening to blow the whistle on me. My career would be over. Dragon may leave the force. So I'm over a barrel. I can send him off against rival gangs or independent maniacs like this shrew character, but I've got to steer him away from any vicious circle activities the bad guys are tightening their grip on the city and i can't do a damn thing about it and being as this is a not just a comic book but specifically an ongoing narrative this is a story this is a basically we're going to be getting a serialized story here you know that sooner or later the dragon is gonna find out what what darling has been up to And wouldn't you know, there's there's Lucy barking. Hmm. Well anyway, you already know that sooner or later the dragon's gonna find out all about Darling's dirty laundry and what's going on with that. And so in the here and now though, this does create drama because they are supposed to be friends, well, darling's actions these are not the actions of a friend friends don't treat each other this way and yet desperate times call for desperate measures do they not so anyway all in all this is i think good drama and the reason i'm kind of harping on it here is because so often image comics don't really at least the early offerings of image they don't really get Let's face it, they don't get praise for their sophisticated writing and, and all of that. The, the easy joke is that Image Comics, oh boy, they sure live up to their name. And the thing about it is there are instances where that's true. But the fact that it's true, at least some of the time, shouldn't mean that we willfully ignore quality writing when we see it. You know, credit where credit is due. Eric Larson... I honestly don't know a whole lot about uh, his history as a writer prior to Savage Dragon number one, but I would imagine he doesn't have a very extensive history as a writer before putting pen to paper, as it were, for th- for this issue. So I think he's doing actually pretty well for himself, all things considered. So anyway, um, getting into this is Comixology's page eight. And then going forward from there, we get our second big fight of this issue because again, the Savage Dragon is supposed to be all about uh, uh, bad guys, and they're they're attacking the good guys, and everyone's getting the shit beaten out of them. And so we definitely get heaping helpings of that here in the Savage Dragon number one, Comicsology's page eight. Basically, the the dragon. Partially sets a guy's face on fire. Blows... The guy's sticking a a cigarette lighter in the dragon's face. The dragon grabs onto his hand. And then spews, I assume, liquor of some kind. Out of his mouth. Over top of the cigarette lighter. So naturally it ignites right away. And... God, that would have to hurt like anything. And so... But then after that, the fight's on. And... Basically... The dragon cleans house on virtually everybody inside of the bar, the name of which is Moe's. Now, considering the fact that The Simpsons was one of the biggest hits that was on TV at the time this issue came out, I can't help wondering if the name of this bar isn't some kind of a nod or a wink or a reference to Moe's Tavern from The Simpsons. And I don't know, it's just... The name of the bar could have been anything. Didn't have to be Moe's. So why did they call it Moe's? So anyway, but if you need a reminder of just how tough the dragon is and how much ass he can really kick, he, and again, this is no exaggeration, cleans house on the entire fucking bar. Now, getting into uh, Comixology's page 10 where the dragon puts some guy's face through what looks like a plaster wall and then smashes him across the room. This is one of those times... This is basically one of the things I was thinking of when I was commenting on the cover just a little while ago, saying that I don't know that the art inside this book necessarily matches up with the quality of art that's on the cover. Because Comixology's page 10. This is... I'm kind of picky about art anyway, but what the fuck is happening on this page? Where and I mean specifically panels 3 and 4, this I guess the the woman who owns the bar, she is just so weird looking and everything on this page really is just this kind of weird scratchy it looks like pencils by Klaus Jansen, inks by or no, I guess no. I guess maybe pencils by Bilsonkovich, inks by Klaus Janssen. Or I guess it could be vice versa. Whatever. Basically pairing up Bilks Bilsonkovich with Klaus Janssen with everything that implies. God, that would be a fucking nightmare. My God. And anyway, I'm not a big fan of either of those artists. And this this page more than any other in this entire issue is. Yeah, I don't know, it, it, it's like it's just, it, it, it's the worst of both worlds, you know, the worst of Bill Sinkevich, the worst of Klaus Janssen, and some weird, sick, twisted, unholy, abominable b of a page, and so, anyway, but there is kind of an interesting little nugget, again, Comixology's page 10 in the final panel, uh, the Talking Head newscaster says, another report of a Mighty Man sighting. Mighty Man died a year and a half ago after his alter ego Robert Berman was knifed in his Elgin, Illinois home, and I'm kind of curious about that because, at the at the time that the Savage Dragon number one came out, I want to say that the reign of the Superman storyline was really reaching a fever pitch. Over at DC Comics, it was really reaching a fever pitch by about the summer of 1993 and so like is this a reference you know superman he's he 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 died at the hands of doomsday and then there were rumors that he had come back to life there were these sightings of different people claiming to be superman all across metropolis and it just kind of made me wonder is that what is that what this was a reference to and then Eventually, Larson just decided to take my, uh, Mighty Man kind of in its own its own little direction. Yeah, you know, I just I've always been a little bit curious about that, and of course, I've never met Eric Larson, so I'm in no position to ask about that. But I've always wondered was that was that the the origin of that idea? So I don't know. Uh, before recording this episode, I actually did just kind of half-assed Google search on that. It seems I'm the only one who's talking about that, so it just sort of makes me wonder. So, whatever. Anyway, uh, moving right along, we get this bit of business at the grave site where the dragon basically gets voluntold to, to pay a visit to his ex-girlfriend's, or his dead girlfriend's uh, grave. And this is good for motivation, for character development, and all that fun stuff. It's worth asking, what exactly is it with the dead girlfriend? Like, what's the story there? And again, by virtue of the fact that this is an ongoing story, what do you want to bet that sooner or later we're going to get some answers about that? So, anyways. Moving right along, this is getting into Comicsology's page 15 and then going forward from there the dragon has his his big showdown with the shrew and last time he used a it looked i don't even know what it was a giant fucking gun of doom uh, an automatic of some kind and that didn't work against the shrew so this time the dragon goes in there packing a pair of chainsaws as his weapon and considering how dangerous the shrew is yeah, maybe having a pair of chainsaws is going to make this a little bit more of a fair fight. We'll never know because the, the the shrew basically finds a way to disarm the dragon in pretty short order. And so after that, it's hand to, they're they're back to hand-to-hand combat. And then getting into Comicsology's page 18, this is sort of the dirty hairy moment of this issue where the dragon has overpowered the shrew, okay? The dragon has won. And rather than running the shrew in straight away, the dragon just pounds him and pounds him and pounds him and pounds him just into fucking submission and into unconsciousness, really. And offhand, I don't, I'm not, I don't remember Harry Callahan doing anything like that in the Dirty Harry movies. Maybe he did, and I'm just blanking on it. I don't remember him ever doing anything quite like that, though. And then again, he never went up. He didn't have superpowers, and he wasn't going up against superpowered foes. And so, I don't know. But the point is, this to me is one of the clearest Dirty hairy moments of this entire issue. You're looking at it. And by the way, just so I can be clear, that's not a bug. That's a feature. I like this about uh, about Savage Dragon comics that you would get just little moments like this once in a while where the dragon just sort of loses control of his control and maybe maybe he would just beat somebody until they're a bloody pulp even though he's clearly already won the fight. So, I don't know. All in all, I just really I just really dig that. So, Moving right along, we get a little bit more conflict between the dragon and Darling on page 20, Comixology's page 20. And they You get the idea that Darling is a man who's trying to live with a very difficult decision. He's kind of walking on eggshells with the dragon. He doesn't He doesn't want to lose a good officer. He also wants to protect his own career, but it's like at the same time. The guilt of all of this is just eating him alive. And this is just good drama. Now, it only lasts for three panels. That's no exaggeration. Three panels. And then after that, we basically get another fight scene. This one is between uh, Nitro and... What is... Oh, no, not Nitro. My bad. This uh, This is another showdown... This is another fight between uh, the dragon, uh, Barbaric, and uh, Ricochet. Actually, it's mostly the dragon and Barbaric. Ricochet mostly just tries to break up the fight. And so I guess what I like about this is the fact that the dragon has made it clear uh, multiple times now that look he's the only superpowered person on the entire police force and so he doesn't mind going up against superpowered people himself super freaks let's just let, let's just run with it they are super freaks he doesn't mind going up against super freaks himself but he'd like some help you know that that would be very welcome and the fact is good help is hard to find and i would imagine that good super-powered help is even harder to find still. And so, I guess what I like about this is, number one, it continues satisfying the action quotient that is promised by a lot of Image Comics, especially in this vintage. And at the same time, it it's a case of mistaken identity. Barbaric and the dragon, they slap each other around a lot, but it neither of them gets hurt so badly that there's no hope now of reconciliation and under the circumstances, now that the dragons kind of put barbaric through now that he's kind of put barbaric through his paces a little bit. I think it, I think it's actually very logical that the dragon would take the next step of saying, well, you know what? I've been bitching and complaining about how much help I need. These two have superpowers. And at the very least, this barbaric guy is nothing to fuck around with so i know he can take a lot of punishment maybe this is the help that i've been looking for and so pretty much that's that and i'm not exaggerating that is that that's the end of the issue and i guess we are sort of left to surmise where things go from there but you know i got to tell you man all in all this is this is just a really fun really cool first issue, it delivers on the promise, and I just, I don't have any any real, I mean, apart from, apart from that that bit of business at at Moe's, I don't really have too much of anything in the way of a uh, in the way of a, a criticism. This is just a really fun, fight filled comic, and when I can just sort of ignore the fact that Comixology's page 10 is just, this is some weird, wonky-looking, fucked-up kind of art. Once I move away from that, this is just a really fun issue, and it's a great first issue of just this really edgy and just super violent, action-packed, kind of gritty cop, like super-powered cop type of comic, and it's just... Yeah, I just ha- had a blast reading this issue, and I'm really looking forward to seeing where things go. But uh, yeah, so I think that's I think that's pretty much that with Savage Dragon number one. Now, as to feedback, 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 feedback. I've got something here. Yep. All right. So this is an email that I received from longtime listener and longtime sender of feedback. Not really sure how best to. Say. Anyway, whatever. Longtime listener, fanboy miss Prime. This is entitled Ultimate Spider-Man and was sent on March the 3rd, 2015. So, Prime writes, hey Magnus. So, you are talking about the first seven issues of Ultimate Spider-Man. I remember getting for free comic book day, among other issues, the first issue of what you are reviewing and hating it. Why, you should ask, is simple. It was a drawn out version of Spider-Man's classic origin, something done in 15 or so pages. Sure, it could be stretched out to uh, a full first issue, and I won't mind, but six issues? To hell with that. Uh, rather, to hell with that to trade size bloating Out of a story that proved it could be done quickly and effectively. You know, something Prime, something I honestly don't remember commenting on in that Ultimate Spider Man episode that you're reacting to is Peter's. Peter has that little confrontation at some point. It's, and it kind of varies based upon the telling, but he has a confrontation with somebody where he has a chance to stop the guy that's going to go on to be the burglar who kills Uncle Ben, he has a chance to stop him and chooses not to. Now, oddly enough, I can't remember exactly how that scene played out with Ultimate Spider-Man, but in Amazing Fantasy number 15, what Peter did in that scene was completely uncalled for, right? Right? It was Peter basically just being an asshole. That's pretty much what it was all about. Peter had a chance. He could have stopped the thief and didn't do it. He chose not to do it. He acted like an asshole for no reason whatsoever. Now, when you start getting into the Sam Raimi Spider-Man film, the first one, or the first Amazing Spider-Man film by Mark Webb, uh, Basically, and as I recall, Ultimate Spider-Man as well, but I, mean, I may be misremembering that, but in every single one of those, Peter had not necessarily a good reason for not stopping the thief, but he had a reason for not stopping the thief, and it might have been flimsy. It might. He may have even been justified, like in the Sam Raimi movie. You can kind of understand where Spider-Man uh, w- was coming from there. The promoter had basically cheated him out of money. And so when Spider-Man had a chance to save the money, basically stop, stop the thief and recover the loot, he chose not to do it. You know, Now, the promoter had already screwed him out of money, so now he was screwing the promoter out of money. Tit for tat. In the moment. Now, yeah, Peter goes on to, to pay a very heavy price for that decision. But in the moment, you can kind of understand where Peter was coming from in the first Spider-Man film. And the same thing I would say for Amazing Spider-Man, where, as I recall, the, the shop, there was a convenience store that gets held up and Peter chooses not to intervene Well, the guy behind the counter wouldn't sell him chocolate milk, even though Peter had almost enough money to pay for it. The shopkeeper wouldn't do it. So there, Peter's excuse is still flimsier, but he still kind of has an excuse, right? So, and that, like I say, that just does not apply in Amazing uh, Fantasy number 15. What Peter did was totally out of line, nobody had done anything to 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 piss him off. He had a chip on his shoulder because of the world you know there wasn't a particular person you know the guy that uh that uh screwed uh Peter over really i now that I think about it in both movies, the first Raimi movie and the first web movie Peter got screwed over. To varying degrees in both of those, and so when those people got sort of their comeuppance, Peter didn't stand in the way of that. And one of the reasons that Amazing Fantasy, I think, is simply a better origin for the character, the lesson he takes from all of this is with great power, there must also come great responsibility. And that lesson, I think, gets very diluted in the movies where. Peter has some justification, flimsy though it may be, he still has some justification for his action, or inaction, as the case may be. Whereas in Amazing Fantasy number 15, there was no excuse. He had a golden opportunity to do what was right, but he chose to be selfish. And to me, that's what makes the great responsibility lesson so powerful in Amazing Fantasy number 15, where... It doesn't really come across as strongly in the adaptations. And I don't know why these little nips and tucks to the origin were made. I don't know what the creative logic behind this stuff was. I simply know that what Peter did in Amazing Fantasy number 15 by not stopping the thief was totally uncalled for and basically informs everything that character ultimately comes to stand for. Whereas... In the movies, it's not completely uncalled for. I mean, yes, it's still wrong. He's still, it, it doesn't really matter what other people do to you. If you have a chance to to stop the bad guy without risking your own life, I think you have a moral obligation to do it, you know? And so, yeah, you, Peter really, he he should have intervened, but you can kind of understand where he's coming from and not intervening in the movies, you know, whereas in the comic, like I say, it was totally uncalled for, and he paid the price for his selfishness, you know, and Uncle Ben definitely paid the price for his selfishness, and my memory of it is, just to kind of tie it all back to the subject at hand here, my memory of it is that the same thing really applies for Ultimate Spider-Man as well. Spider-Man, or Peter, he he had the chance to do what was right, but he had I would say pretty, not good reasons, but he had understandable reasons for not doing it. Now, it's been forever since I've read Ultimate Spider-Man, so, or at least those issues, so I could be misremembering this, but my memory of it is somewhat like Amazing Spider-Man, the movie, he had kind of flimsy reasons, they're not great, he still should have intervened, he still should have stopped uh, the The Thief. He simply chose not to and he had a, a kind of half-ass kind of not really but kind of justified reason for for not doing it you know it was not totally out of line totally uncalled for peter being an asshole, uh there there was some understandable reason for him not doing it you know so to me when it comes to that specific moment in the Spider-Man mythos. Amazing Fantasy number 15 is... It's the reigning champion. So, anyway. Prime goes on to say, Plus, to be honest, as I've said, the X-Men and Avengers are my favorite Marvel books. I've enjoyed Spider-Man in in various runs of the character, but he's not one that I keep coming back to as much as the X-Men and Avengers. Plus, Bendis has burned me many times with his stories being, well... Shit, to be honest. Just finished his all new X Men story where they go to the Ultimate Verse, and it was a wandering mess that went nowhere. Didn't even include a clash between the two X Men teams. The fight with Doctor Doom was pathetic. A whole issue served as a flashback to getting to the Doom fight's opening. You couldn't. You. Let's see, this is. You couldn't call the person that opened the portals to the Ultimate Verse a character as she was merely a plot device in the first and last issue. And it wasn't explained how Dr. Doom got away from the Ultimate FF, as they probably want to keep a close eye on him. And actually, you know what, Prime? I'm going to be completely honest with you. I've never actually read um, the Bendis All-New X-Men stuff, so I really can't comment on that too much. But from the Ultimate Universe's standpoint, this could just be prejudice on my part. It could just be that I've read uh I, I or I've seen more of the uh, of the ultimate universe Doctor Doom than I can remember of the 616 universe Doctor Doom. I've retained more of that. I guess is what I'm trying to say. I have to agree with you. Yeah, the the Ultimate Fantastic 4 team, they are definitely going to keep tabs on on Doctor Doom. There's they really I don't know, whatever. I'm just kind of amplifying on what you say. Yeah, he's definitely somebody that they would want to keep an eye on. So if what that Benda story hinges on is basically some kind of a conflict or an encounter with ultimate doom, um, yeah, the I think you're going to need to account for, the, for uh, the Fantastic Four, like ultimate Fantastic Four. You're going to have to account for them in some kind of a way, you know, even if it's to say, well, they're off planet, and they're saving the world from, I don't fucking blah, 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 you know, and the boogerman, and that's why they're not, you need to, and honestly, I mean, I'm criticizing Bendis for something that for all I know, maybe he did account for in some way or another. But yeah, I, I, I think I agree with you. That's, I've got questions about, I've got problems with that myself. So I don't know. Anyway, uh, Prime continues, And I got the feeling that in the next issue, uh, the next to last issue of it, that the story was going to be rubbish with that long flashback for the Doom fight. The final issue was merely the final nail in the coffin, and also explained why the ultimate line is dead, as the new Spider-Man is the only character everyone agrees will go to the Marvel Universe post-Secret Wars. And Prime, I think history's kind of proven you right on that. And frankly, I think the female Peter Parker clone deserves to survive as well. She, at least, could be interesting. Which says a lot when, out of an entire universe, I only think two characters in it are worth putting in the Marvel Universe. And I've read quite a bit of it, as I enjoyed Warren Ellis' trio of miniseries, read quite a bit of the post-Ultimatum Ultimates characters uh, material, which is Ultimate uh, Avengers 1, 2, and some of 3, New Ultimates versus New Avengers, and many issues of the last Ultimate series, and relaunch of Ultimate Ultimate X-Men, Spider-Man, Cataclysm, and the Ultimate FF. Uh, Prime, I'm going to put your email on pause here and say, I think that the Ultimate Universe is one of those things where... the idea of scaling back on continuity that is just such an early 2000s decision to make if you ask me it's that basically that was done that that decision was made at a time when a lot of comics companies were well i say a lot dc and marvel let's face it both of them were basically taking a long look at continuity and they were starting to think you know what i think I think this is, the, or at least it's a problem. It may not be the problem, but I think it's a problem. What we want to do is attract new readers, and this continuity is starting to get in the way. And so the Ultimate Universe, I think, was created so that new readers could get an access point into these characters that didn't really exist otherwise. Now... It seems kind of like a whatever decision these days, but guys, I really can't overemphasize what a major uh, revolution this really was, what a huge change this actually was, because all through the 70s as i understand it all through the 80s as i understand it and definitely all through the 90s as i fucking remember it one of one of the hallmarks that dc and marvel would both hype up or promote in in their various titles and i and now that i think about it i think even valiant like classic valiant I think this was sort of their calling card as well, of having tight, logical, and coherent continuity. For the most part, you could understand it. For the most part, it would make sense. And everything more or less added up. I mean, let's face it. You've got all of these different creators who are working on all of these different characters at all of these different times. You gotta expect something, but it's like at the same time, this shit is mostly gonna fit together in a pretty logical way. And the purpose of events in the DC universe, like Crisis on Infinite Earths, and I would say, arguably to a greater extent, Zero Hour, it was not so much to eliminate continuity as put continuity in a context where it makes sense. You know, you can read all of this shit and it's going to add up in a pretty logical way. And I guess what I'm trying to say is continuity was a selling point in the 90s and as best I can tell in the 70s and in the 80s as well. So 70s, 80s and 90s, what the comics companies were trying to put out there was um, the uh, concept that we have continuity, it adds up, it makes sense. You can read this stuff and everything is going to fit together in a pretty logical way. And that's why, number one, it was such a big deal when that thinking began to change in the early 2000s. And then number two, that of all people, it was Marvel that, that made that change. And I kind of put that down to the fact that in the late 90s and in the early 2000s, Marvel was just more willing to take creative risks than DC was. DC took a lot of creative risks in the 80s. And then I would say going into up through the the mid 90s. But after that, they seem to back off a little bit on, on taking chances. And so when you start getting into the early 2000s, Marvel, they were still trying to reestablish their cred in the marketplace following their bankruptcy and like 1995 or 96 or whenever that was and a lot of people were still kind of looking at marvel sideways a little bit you know they still needed to to prove themselves in ways that just weren't necessary i would say even 10 years earlier especially 10 years earlier you know so getting into 2000 2001 marvel they don't necessarily have the same cred like i say and so i think that the introduction of the Ultimate Universe, it came down to the comic book industry rethinking the importance of continuity, along with the fact that Marvel, they needed they needed something they could use to prove themselves. And so I think maybe that created the perfect storm of factors to where somebody gave final approval on creating the Ultimate Universe and a star was born. But when you start getting into the blood and guts of the Ultimate Universe, I mean, you're like five, six years deep into this thing. I think the wheels start kind of coming off the wagon because at this point, you've got five or six years of intricate, in-depth, layered, textured, nuanced, and very detailed continuity. And it's starting to become a bit of a challenge for all these different Uh, creators and uh, writers and editors to manage and figure out and understand and keep separate from the mainstream Marvel universe. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you, Prime, that the Ultimate Universe is a noble failure, because I just don't think that it was. Failure, yes. Noble, I don't know. I mean, I see a lot of good stories in the Ultimate Comics, but there were also just some what-the-fuck decisions that got made, too. Like, for like for example, the Ultimate Universe never seemed to really know what to do with Daredevil. You know? They seemed to want to have a kind of Miller-ish or 2003 Daredevil movie-ish take on the character. And things just didn't really seem to fit together all that well. Or nothing seemed to nothing much seemed to come out of ultimate daredevil they never really knew what to do with the with that character you start getting into the ultimates there's the whole i mean let's face it incest thing i mean what the fuck and so so there was that and am i the only one that just doesn't like ultimate cap i don't know i mean the guy just Every time I, like everything that I can remember about Ultimate Captain America, the guy just comes off like a blowhard asshole, you know? So, I mean, I don't know. And yeah, Ultimate Spider-Man is good. It's like everybody seems to agree on that. And by that, I mean Ultimate Peter Parker. Everyone seems to to love that character. Bendis really went all out on that character. And I think it shows, but it's like at the same time, you can't build a universe out of just one cool character. And so, I don't know, it's, th- yes, there were some good ultimate stories, and I think, you know, in in large part, this was an, a, an experiment that was worth doing, but I don't think ultimately that, huh, pardon the pun, uh, but I don't think that ultimately this was a creative success, and people can talk whatever shit they want about Miles Morales, I don't give a damn, okay? So I don't know. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion. But in the end, I really, Prime, I generally have to agree with you. I really don't think that this is Marvel at its best, shall we say. So anyway, getting back into Prime's email, he writes, yes, very much so. I have not touched the various Ultimate Spider-Man stuff beyond Spider-Men. Again, he's a character I had zero interest in, even with the new guy. Also, Mysterio creating his own portal between dimensions is bullshit. The man is a special effects expert, not a mad scientist. This guy could not beat AIM to find a way there. Unless he managed to get... The tech from groups like Gauntlet that used inter, interdimensional travel tech for various purposes, but nothing was offered in the story either way on where Quentin Beck got the technology to do that. And Prime, I kind of have to agree with you on that. That does sound kind of stupid. Kind of stupid, but uh, anyway, Prime goes on to say Gauntlet is from the first story arc of the Counter X Men uh, of the Counter X X Man run. I call it Counter X as that was what they called the six months later X Man. X-Force, and Generation X stories. Not sure if you're a fan of Warren Ellis, Magnus, but they might be fun uh, for an obscure and forgotten X-Book revamp. Generation X having to uh, try to interact with normal teens, X-Force becoming a black ops team under the command of Pete Wisdom, and Nate Gray becoming a guardian of the Marvel Universe from all the dimensions around it. Actually, that does sound kind of interesting, the Nate Gray thing. Well, actually, it's a, it's a bit more than that in Nate Gray's case, but I, I'll say it is a direction for the character cut far too short. Not suggesting any of those would, would change your life at all, nor that they are required reading. Just saying, that, uh, just saying something to unearth from the cheap bins and give you something to talk about for the show. Also, on Generation X, I must ask if you consider a series that goes 75, issue to be, 75 issues to be a short-lived series. Some internet reviewer seems to have a very different idea what a short-lived series uh, is from me. Uh, Prime, I'm going to put your email back on pause here and say that, um, to me, short-lived is anything less, it's like 23 issues or less. That is short-lived. If you make it to issue 24 and then going forward, then we can start saying that, yeah, this series has some legs to it, and there were people that were interested. When you get to 75 issues, I mean, like, what is that? That's like six years or something like that? Or close, like five five or six years? I mean, to me, you can't really say that something is short-lived if it goes for five or six years, you know? You just can't really do that. And so, um, any any idiot who says that Generation X was a short-lived a uh, marvel series i don't think they know what the fuck they're talking about now as far as generation x this is one of those things that like even when those comics were coming out i kind of wondered okay well it's fine to call this series about mutant teens running around in the early to mid 90s if you want to call that generation x well, actually, really, you, you kind of have to say the the early, really mostly the, the early 90s. If you want to call that Generation X, I guess that's fine. But when you start getting into the mid-90s and going forward, teenagers really aren't Generation X anymore by that point. And so what exactly do you call your mutant teenager book? in the early to mid 90s, if it's not Generation X, because millennials doesn't have that X connection to it. So what do you do exactly? And so I don't know. I mean, I realized this, maybe I'm overthinking it, but this was a branding thing that even when I was a kid, I kind of saw problems with because, you know, here I was upper spectrum of millennials and I don't know. Whatever. Maybe I'm just overthinking it. I don't know. But no, that's not... Sh- if it goes 75 ishu- uh, issues, Prime, it's definitely not short-lived. So, anyway. Prime, go- uh, Prime continues by saying, Also, while giving show suggestions, IDW's Transformers versus G.I. Joe, or, as I put it, a Kirby-fueled kids' play session with their action figures, like they got into their older brother or or cousin's fourth world comics. For another oddity, and Marvel-related... Uh Fantastic Four, World's Greatest Comics Magazine Limited Series that is to be a retroactive, more grand ending to the Stan Lee and Jack Kirby run. A grand road trip of the Marvel Universe circa 1970. Again, something you could find in the cheap bins like I did. Um Okay, you know what, Prime? I'm this is I'm sure this is gonna make for some riveting podcasting, but I wanna fire up my Marvel app here. And just see if I can find that, because I'm going to be honest with you, Prime, just as you described that to me, that actually does sound kind of, that actually does sound kind of interesting, and uh, it's really just, I- I'm going to be honest with you, Prime, if it was just Fantastic Four all by itself, I don't think that alone would would do it for me. But specifically the fact that you're talking about a... a Basically, it sounds like a little bit more of a high-concept conclusion to the Lee Kirby run. That actually does sound sort of interesting to me. Like, I'm actually, as as much as anything, I guess uh, what I want to do is find out, you know, who the creative team for that series is, or for that matter, if the Marvel app even has it. Because, I don't know. I mean, I'm not promising anything, but that actually does sound... That actually does sound uh, sort of interesting. And indeed, it looks like they've got something here. Let's see. Why does the fucking Marvel app do this? They'll show you one issue of it and click here to see the whole series. It's like, yeah, fuckhead, I want to see the whole series from the jump. Just fucking show me that. Asshole. So, let's see. Oh! Coincidentally enough, uh, this was... Written by Eric Larson, so there's your Savage Dragon connection there, guys. Written by Eric Larson and Eric Stevenson. Art by Keith Giffen, Eric Larson, Jorge Lucas, and Bruce Tim. Wow. Bruce Tim. I didn't see that coming. I'm gonna be honest with you, Prime. I, I guess I wasn't aware of the fact that Bruce Tim had ever done, well, really anything for Marvel. So wow. All right. Uh, Prime, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I'm looking at some of the... I'm looking at the uh, creative team here. That looks kind of interesting. I'm looking at these covers. Those look kind of interesting. This looks sort of like vintage, sort of like 1960s Silver Age throwback Marvel-type stuff. And, wow, 12 issues. So, hmm. Let's see. They've got... Oh, it looks like there's some crossover stuff, not too much, but a little bit of crossover stuff that's happening as well, let's see, got some, looks like at least uh, Cap, Hulk, I'm guessing this is, they're standing on the Rainbow Bridge on this issue, so I'm guessing this is uh, Thor. Huh. All right. Look, uh, Prime. Again, I'm not. I'm not gonna make any promises here. All right, but uh, I'm gonna be completely honest with you, dude, and say this really does look sort of interesting to me. So I'm not gonna guarantee you that I'm gonna cover this on the show necessarily. But uh, I'm at the very least, I'm probably gonna, you know read a couple of issues and just see how things go with that, but uh, that's a, that looks like a damn good recommendation right there, so uh, thank you very much, so again I mean, I'm not promising you that I'm gonna talk about it on the show, but I, I can promise you that sounds fucking awesome so, anyway Prime finishes up his email by saying love the show and we will keep on listening, signed Fanboy MS Prime, so like I say, Prime thank you so much uh, for your feedback, thank you for Uh, these recommendations that world's greatest comics magazine thing sounds really interesting and like i say i'm probably going to check out a couple of issues i don't guarantee that i'm going to necessarily cover them on the show but at the very least i do guarantee that i'm going to check into that and uh let's just see what's going on with that so and that i think is pretty much it now as to next week i'm going to be talking about obviously savage dragon number two but that's for next week so i think that's pretty much it for me for this week so Bye everybody, I'll see you next week. feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to 2 truefreaks.com there you can find the paypal button donate any amount at all specify that you're sending magnus some monetary love and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener it's that easy and there's no minimum donation be a trenis magnus show sponsor today i don't have a patreon because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included, many will enter, few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only, all models are over the age of 18. a podcast called "Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. I release new episodes every Tuesday, and sometimes those episodes are all about Smallville. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville. In my opinion, Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in history. Magnus Talks About Smallville is dedicated to themes story arcs and character motivations of smallville i do a ton of in-depth analysis of each episode of the show and people seem to love listening to me talk about smallville and i want you along for the ride check out magnus talks about smallville a feature of Trennis magnus punches reality and see for yourself why smallville is awesome magnus talks about smallville a feature of Trenis Magnus Punches Reality. Only at 2